everybody, it's Rich. Welcome, or welcome back, to the Access Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you'll find our complete Sunday experience with music, as well as great content for kids and students. Visit accesschurch.com to keep up with everything going on around here at Access, and subscribe to our email list. We'll send you helpful suggestions each week designed to help you make friends, grow in faith, and live with purpose. Most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy! Many of us grew up in traditions other than Christianity. Many of us grew up maybe outside of the church completely. Maybe you're here this morning as someone who has a lot of questions about Jesus. And Christmas is a great time to explore those questions and to ask, like, who is Jesus? And is he really God? And did he even make these claims about himself? I'm so glad if you're here, if you are someone who is exploring faith, who is asking questions about Jesus and and who he claimed to be and who he was. We're going to talk about that today. But many of us grew up in the church, and so we grew up with our traditions, and you might identify with some of these. Um, I grew up in a church tradition where we encouraged students very early on to commit their lives to Jesus. We didn't say it that way. We said, ask Jesus into your heart. Some of you who grew up maybe in a tradition like that where, you know, as a child, that's really confusing language in the first place. Um, But for some reason, we decided that that would make a lot of sense to kids to invite Jesus into our hearts. But what we meant by that was that we would we would commit our lives to Jesus, that we would give our lives to God, that we would ask him to be the Lord of our lives. But really for a lot of us, if we're honest, it meant I'm a sinner. I've done some bad things. This was not hard for me to embrace. Now I know for some of you, that's a stumbling point. That's a hard point for you to come to faith in Jesus because you don't like the idea that you might be labeled as a sinner. I get that. I totally get that. And nobody here is trying to make you feel bad. But nobody had to make me feel bad when I was a kid. I knew I was bad. I was in trouble all the time. I was grounded. Matter of fact, my mom grounded me when I was probably four or five years old. And I did not get out of that until I was 18 and left for college. And you, you laugh because you think that's a joke. But honestly, my mom had this tendency. None of us do this. We are all much more mature versions of our parents, right? But my mom had this tendency to kind of like get upset sometimes and let her emotions kind of carry her away with the discipline. None of us have ever done that. I know none of you have ever done that. But she would ground us for like months at a time. When you're eight years old, a month is like the rest of your life. So when you're grounded for a month, it's like, well, why be good now, right? I'm already in as much trouble as I can possibly be in. Anyway, I remember um, when I was eight years old and someone explained to me that Jesus had died for my sins and that I could pray a prayer and I could ask Jesus to be my savior and that I would then be forgiven of my sins and I could go to heaven. And I knew that I needed a savior. I knew I was a sinner. This was not a question for me. And so I prayed that prayer and I asked Jesus to be my savior. And a week later, I was in trouble again. And I thought, oh, it didn't stick. Am I the only one here? Anybody else? Oh yeah, it didn't stick, right? Gotta pray it again. And so I remember 
an infinite number of times that I knelt by my bed. I was like, maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe I wasn't kneeling by my bed, right? Like I had to do it the right position. I had to do it the right. But if I could just do it the right way, if I could invite Jesus into my life, then Jesus would forgive me and I wouldn't be so bad anymore. Well, some of us grew up in that tradition. Some of us can experience that or identify with that. Others of us grew up in other traditions. Maybe in your family, it was important that you be baptized as a child or that you be christened as a child. But at some point, there's this effort that our parents make to make sure that we are kind of like good with God, right? That we enter into a relationship with God. And the thing is that this is about entering in, entering into a relationship. And um, the reality is that as much as we have been invited to enter in to a relationship with God, there is another piece that, that Jesus talked about an awful lot, a piece that those who knew Jesus and hung out with Jesus seemed to understand, a piece that the early church, the first century believers, they, they, they actually saw no distinction between entering in to a relationship with Jesus and participating in a relationship with Jesus. See, in our world, in our culture, we've kind of separated these two that like we can somehow enter in but not fully participate in the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus and all of the people who knew Jesus and all of the early followers of Jesus, they saw absolutely no distinction between these two. That to enter into a relationship with Jesus meant that you were participating in the mission of Jesus, that your life then was surrendered to his life, that the mission of your life and the purpose of your life and the vision for your life was surrendered to the purpose and the vision for the life of Jesus. So they were one in the same. They didn't make a distinction between believers and participators. Believers and participators were the same. And in fact, the reason that we even know about Christmas is because of those who believed in and participated in the mission of Jesus, participated in the kingdom of Jesus. Because as it turns out, we started talking about this last week, that Jesus didn't just come uh, to be a savior. When we release or when we reduce Jesus to a religious figure, when we reduce Jesus to just a, a teacher on a hillside, then we miss out on a very important part of the Christmas story. And that is that it wasn't just that a baby was born, a king was born. A king came into the world. And this is what we've been talking about in this series, the day after Christmas. Because, you know, we, we start Christmas music early. Um, you, we talked to somebody this morning, one of our volunteers, and they actually put their tree up the second week of November because they were having family come in for Thanksgiving and they were doing Thanksgiving and Christmas all together. So for a month already, they have had the Christmas tree up. For a month already, they've had the Christmas music going. You know, by the time December 26 rolls around, they are going to be ready to put the tree away and turn the music off and go back to normal, right? But the reality is that on that very first Christmas, on that very first Christmas, life would never be normal again. The fact that a king had been born into this world meant that the world would never go back to normal. It would never go back to the way it was. That, that in this world of darkness and in this world of chaos, a baby had been born. 
but not just a baby, a baby that would split the calendar in two, a baby whose life would transform the lives of every person who intersected with his life while he was on this earth and has changed the lives of every person who's encountered him since. And the story begins with the very familiar verse that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, this was an audacious undertaking that they would try in this world long before technology, that they would try to get everyone back to the town in which they were born. They would try to account for everyone and try to determine if the Roman government was getting the taxes that they were due. And so that's what this is all about. And of course, it creates tremendous confusion because now people have to travel. They have to go back home. There's not a tourism industry in these days. So there's traffic jams. There's problems with lodging. We know all of this, right? But back in those days, this wasn't the Christmas story. There was no Christmas. There was just chaos. And into this world of chaos is the world that Jesus is born into, a world where might made right a world where those who had the gold made the rules. And this was the world that Jesus comes into and Jesus introduces his upside down kingdom. A kingdom in which those who would be first must be last. Those who must want to be great must serve. And a kingdom where heaven literally meets earth, where Jesus came to intersect the divine with the ordinary. And that that in participating in this kingdom, this other's first kingdom, that participating in this kingdom would mean that somehow we would actually join heaven and earth right here in this world. That following Jesus wouldn't just be about entering into heaven someday when you die, but that you could actually begin to participate in his kingdom right here and right now. Now, Mary knew that the birth of Jesus was something different, not only because she had gotten pregnant as a young virgin, but because an angel came to her and an angel said that he would be the Messiah. He would be the final king. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. His kingdom will never end. And Mary hears this and she understands and she knows that this means that Jesus is not just going to be a religious figure. This is royal language. He is born to be king. And so as we've started asking last week, and as we'll continue to ask through this series, the question for you and I is, is he your king? Is he my king? Are we willing to allow Jesus to be king of our lives? Many, many fascinating things around the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus. But one of the things that's fascinating is that magi came from the East. Now, magi were part of the royal uh, court and they came from uh, Arabia or they came from Asia. They came from East. They maybe came from Syria. They came from East of Jerusalem. And they were people who studied for the sake of the royal court because the king is always wanting to know what the future holds, 
right? Just the same way that we would love to know what does the future hold? And kings are always grasping for this. And so at some point, copies of the ancient Jewish literature, including the ancient Jewish wisdom literature and the ancient Jewish prophecies had made their way, copies of these documents had made their way to other nations. And so these magi or these wise men had studied these documents and they studied the events in the sky. And somehow they put together that this new star symbolized something big, something big. And they put this together with the prophecies that they had. And they came to the conclusion that there was a king that had been born in Israel. So Magi from the East came to Jerusalem because if you're looking for a king in Israel, you wouldn't go to the little tiny town of Bethlehem. You would go to the capital of Jerusalem where you would expect to find a king. And they asked because they thought, surely people would know about this. If a new king has been born, this is something that is being celebrated. And they said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They understood that this was a monumental event, that this was a royal event. And they say, we saw his star when it rose. We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now, they haven't followed the star to Jerusalem per se, but they saw the star when it rose and they've come to worship him to bend the knee, to bow, and to bring gifts to this new king. Now, the problem with this was that Israel had a king. Israel had a king who had had his ups and downs in leadership, but he had been put in place by Caesar. He ruled with all of the authority of Rome, and yet his family, very politically savvy family, over generations, they had adopted the religion of the Jewish people. And so they were pseudo-Jewish and and they sort of um, very politically astute and wise. They ruled as rulers on behalf of Caesar, but also smart enough to adopt the ways of the people of Israel. And so Herod, because of his shrewdness, because he was a schemer and because he um, uh, he was a strategist, he was a general, he was a successful military leader, he managed to lead for 40 years in Israel. And he had a strategy not only for his own leadership, but for the leadership of his sons that would come after him. And so when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem with him, because when the king's not happy, nobody's happy. And when the king is disturbed, when the king is concerned, there could be civil unrest. In fact, there could be civil war. Because in a kingdom, there is only room for one king. On a throne, there is room for only one king. And Herod understood this. And Herod knew that when a king arrives, that people would have to choose. So he called together all the people's chief priests. He calls the priests together because he understands that if a new king has been born and his arrival has been announced in the stars. If the heavens have declared the arrival of a new king, then this is a king that's not just been appointed by priests or prophets. This is a king who's been anointed by God himself. And if God himself has anointed a new king, then this spells trouble for Herod. And so he calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. Messiah is a word that he introduces here, 
This is a word that means the final king, Israel's final king. This, this maybe comes from the fact that Herod had been at the temple quite a lot. In fact, the temple that existed at that time was called Herod's temple because Herod had rebuilt the temple. He had funded the rebuilding of the temple with much of his own wealth. And then he had taken taxes that he had gathered from the people and he pulled all this together in a very politically savvy move. He had had the temple of Israel restored to the glory that it had not experienced since the time of Solomon. You see, Herod was okay with the religious practices of the day. He was okay with the religious sacrifices of the day. He was fine with all of that. In fact, he was willing to participate in all of that because to show up and to go through the ritual and to go through the sacrifices and to go to the temple and to recognize the religiosity of this one God of Israel, that was okay. It, it allowed him to remain king. But when his kingship is threatened, we'll see today how Herod responds. And so he asks them, where is this Messiah to be born? You can go ahead. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. In Bethlehem, just six miles down the road, this is what the prophet has written, that a king will come. In fact, they quote from Micah. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote from Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler. Just one of the many prophecies that Jesus' birth fulfilled prophecies that have been made hundreds of years before. And so Jesus shows up on the scene as a little baby. And he is already fulfilling the prophecies that have been made about him. So then Herod, he calls the Magi secretly. So he dismisses everyone else. He dismisses the teachers of the law. And he has just the Magi come into his chambers and he secretly asks them, what is the exact time? that this star appeared. Because Herod recognizes that if indeed a king has been appointed by God, that this threatens his throne and he needs to plan accordingly. You see, in this moment, Herod had a choice to make. Herod had a choice to make because he understood, as you and I should understand, that there is only room for one king on a throne. And he had to choose in that time, would he, would he continue to just go through the motions of religiosity? Would he go through the motions of sacrifice? Would he go through the motions of worship? Or would he actually be willing to bend a knee? Would he be willing to bow to another king? Would he be willing to surrender his will? Would he be willing to let go of the authority and the power that he held? Would he be willing to submit to someone else? Herod had a choice. And he chose to protect his throne. He chose to protect his authority. He chose to protect himself, to not bow and to not submit. And so 
he calls together some of his leaders, his military, and he sends them to Bethlehem. So first he sends the Magi. He says to them, to the Magi, you go ahead, you go to Bethlehem, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But of course he had no intention to bow. He had no intention to worship. So the Magi, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and miraculously, the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, this is a different word. This is probably months after Jesus had been born. Jesus is now a child. He's not a baby. Joseph and Mary had stayed in Bethlehem. Jesus, at this point, he, he could have been crawling. He could have been walking. But Jesus is a young child, and the Magi find him. And as we know from our experiences of the Christmas story, and maybe you even got to play one of the wise men or one of the three kings when you were younger, they came and they brought gifts before baby Jesus, right? On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshiped him. They bowed. They come from other nations. They come from other traditions. They come from other backgrounds, but there's something immediately that they recognize in the baby Jesus that he is worthy of their worship. He is worthy of their adoration. He is worthy of their submission and their surrender. And they bend a knee, they bow before a child because there was something about him that they recognized incredibly. John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, John, who spent uh, three years with Jesus and knew Jesus intimately, John tells us that to be with Jesus was to be with God, was to be in the very presence of our heavenly father, that we can understand what God is like by understanding what Jesus is like. And John tells us that to be with Jesus was to be in the presence of someone who was full of grace and full of truth at the same time something that we should all aspire to, but he wasn't 50-50, grace and truth. He was all grace and he was all truth all the time. That to be in the presence of Jesus itself was a life-changing experience. And so these, these Magi, they come before Jesus and they, they experience him and they bow before him, not just as a religious Leader, You see, we reduce Jesus to this teacher on a hillside. We reduce Jesus to someone who taught, who, who healed, who fed, who took care of the poor and the widows. We miss that Jesus came as a king. He came as a king into this world, a king who deserves our worship, who deserves our surrender, who deserves our submission. But Herod would have none of this. And so the Magi, they're warned in a dream. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then Joseph and Mary, they also are warned of Herod's plot and they escape as well. And when Herod realized 
that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He was furious that his authority was not being obeyed, that his authority had been threatened by someone else's authority. And so he did the worst thing imaginable. He gave orders. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. And you can imagine those who've been given these orders to follow this out there. They're like, wait, sire, are you sure all the boys in Bethlehem? And he says, and its vicinity. I don't want to take any chances. All the boys in Bethlehem in the vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Imagine a village in Israel into which an army comes and begins to slaughter little babies. And we think, how, how is this possible? How can this, how can this be part of the Christmas story? Why, why do we ruin the Christmas story with something like this? And the answer is that this wasn't the Christmas story. This is the story of the arrival of a king and his sovereignty is threatening. His sovereignty means we have to give something up. His sovereignty means that we have to submit. We have to surrender our lives. And all of us on some level, we resist that. But Herod resisted that and he had an army to back him up. And so... In the middle of the Christmas story, something awful and something tragic takes place. But we have to remember, something awful and something tragic was the world into which Jesus came. In fact, it is the awfulness and the tragic world that we live in that was the reason that Jesus had to come. It was the reason that Jesus left his throne Paul writes in Philippians that he considered his equality with God not something to be grasped or held onto, but he gave it up to be humbled and found in appearance as a man. He left all of that to be born in a manger. He was willing to leave his throne in heaven, to come and enter into this world, to move toward the mess of our world because our world needed a savior. You see, for, for those of us, perhaps you've had the conversation, perhaps you've been the one asking this question, you'd say, well, how could a good God allow bad things to happen in this world? Maybe that's something that's been a stumbling point for you or, or a tripping point for your faith. And you need to know that the Christian faith has never, ever stood on a foundation that bad things don't happen to good people. In fact, we would argue that the worst thing imaginable happened to Jesus himself, the best person who ever lived. Our faith doesn't start with only good things happening to good people. Our faith begins 
with bad things happening to good people. And in fact, our faith does not require us to look away from cruelty or injustice or suffering because the God that we follow, he moves toward cruelty. He moves toward injustice. He moves toward suffering. He didn't stay in heaven and insulate himself from the reality of this world. He came into this world because we needed a savior. Christmas is such a big deal because the world is so awful and so lost. If we don't understand why he came to rescue us, if we don't understand from what we are rescued, we miss the grand picture of the arrival of Jesus. We miss what a big deal the arrival of Jesus is, and so we don't understand just how bad off we are without him. And so our faith does not require us to look away from these things. We worship a God who moved toward the mess of this world, who came to offer a solution to the mess of this world, who moved into the messy, messy world in which we live and offers us a solution. Now, because of Herod's incredible hatred toward this baby king. Joseph and Mary had to secret Jesus away to Egypt. And then later, after one of Herod's sons was on the throne, they realized that they would have to go to the outskirts far away from Jerusalem and they settled in Nazareth. And and the idea of this king would not go away though. The idea that there had been a king born who could bring hope to the nation of Israel wasn't lost and didn't go away. And I want to fast forward about 40 years, about 40 years later, after the life of Jesus, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, to a group of followers of Jesus living in the city of Antioch. Antioch was one of the three great cities of the modern world. It was one of the wealthiest and most successful cities in the Roman Empire. Antioch, which currently would be right about where Syria and Turkey come together, right in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch was an incredible city of its day. And there were a group of people there, originally a group of Jewish people who had begun to celebrate that their Messiah had come. They understood and they accepted the teachings that he had died as payment for their sin and that he had been raised from the dead by God. And they began to share this news. They began to inspire their friends and their neighbors to follow Jesus. And these early, this early group of followers, this early group of people who, who followed after the way of Jesus in the beginning, they, they didn't really know what to be called, but they went from being just Jewish people to Jewish and Greek and Jewish and Greek and Roman. And as the movement began to grow, they began to be noticed more and more in Antioch. In fact, the emperor even had spies go and to see what they were all about. And the spies who went and visited this group said, it's very strange. They get up very early on the first day of the week, which was a work day. Sunday was a work day back then. And they would get up early on the first day of the week and they would meet together and they would sing songs to remind themselves of a savior who had given up everything for them, who had invited them to enter into this upside down, others first kingdom. 
And the spies who reported on that early church, they reported back to Caesar that they in fact are the finest citizens among us, that they have made a, a covenant to one another, that they would not defraud one another, that they, would, that they would not participate in fraud, that they would not participate in adultery, that they would not participate in theft. They, they made a covenant to one another that they would actually carry one another's burdens. It's a fascinating community of people who've made a decision to not just believe in this person, Jesus, but to follow after this person, Jesus. And believe it or not, this original group followers who were just called followers of the way, they were seen not as a religious movement in the day, but they were seen as a political movement. They were seen as a group of people, not because they had chosen to follow a religious leader or a religious teacher, but they were, they were contrasted to other political movements of the day. In fact, this is where the name Christian first gets associated with the followers of Jesus, was in Antioch. And it comes from this word that we looked at last week, Christos, the Greek word Christos, which is this idea, it's just a Greek word for king. And they were called Christianis in comparison to those who followed Caesar. In comparison to those who were Herodinis, I'm having trouble saying that. Or who were Caesarinis. You see, we hear Christian, we say Christian, we say Christiani, we see that as a contrast to being uh, Islam or being Jewish or being Hindu or being Buddhist. If someone were to ask you today uh, what your religious category would be, you would, you would pick Christian. In fact, for, for centuries in this country, people have indicated that they are Christian only as a way of distinguishing themselves from other traditions around the world. But when the, when the title was first adopted, it was a political term. There was no such thing as those who followed only Jupiter or those who followed only Venus or those who followed only Mars or any of the different gods. Because back then, you didn't follow a god, you collected gods. You just sort of added one to your collection. But the thing that made Christians so different is that Christians followed only Christ, and they bowed and they surrendered and they submitted their lives to Christ. And this was, this was interesting because this was very, very different from the religions of the day. You see, the religions of the day, much like Herod, they could go through the ritual and they could go through the worship, but it didn't have anything to do with the rest of their life. It would be as if we were to come to church on Sunday and we were to isolate our Sunday experience from the rest of our week. And we would behave a certain way on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, we would live how we wanted to. That was the way that most of the ancient religions were. They did not see, they did not see an overlap between the religious world and their personal world. You see, the gods of that day, they required um, only your worship, but not your allegiance, and certainly not your obedience. Your allegiance and your obedience was something that was required by Caesar. In fact, one of the common expressions of the day by Caesar and the Roman government was worship your gods. Worship your gods. We are fine. Whatever God you choose to worship, worship your gods, but obey Caesar. 
And you see this group of people in Antioch, these Christians in Antioch, these Christianis, these followers of Jesus, they, they weren't just changing religions. They were changing their allegiance. They were changing their allegiance. They were putting their allegiance, their obedience in Christ. And so they were not just entering into a relationship with Jesus. They were participating in the mission of Jesus. Celia, the citizens in Antioch were changing their allegiance. There we go. They were changing their allegiance. And the invitation is there for you and I to do the same today. The invitation is there for us to change our allegiance, to put our allegiance in Christ. And he won't force it on you. He doesn't intrude upon us, but he invites us to place our faith, to place our allegiance, to submit our lives, to bend a knee, to bow to him as king. And something amazing happened in this group of first century Christians, by the way, something absolutely phenomenal. Because they saw themselves as followers of Jesus, because they bowed before Jesus as their king, they began to see the world the way that Jesus had taught the world was, which is they didn't see people as part of a group. They saw people as individuals. So a slave didn't see his master as part of a group and a master didn't see his slave as part of a group. They saw each other. In fact, they called each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of this, everywhere that people began to believe in Jesus, people began to see one another, not as part of a group, but as individuals. And they began to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it didn't matter if you were Jewish or if you were Greek or if you were Roman. It didn't matter if you were male or if you were female. It didn't matter if you were rich or if you were poor, but they would walk into church together and they would greet one another as brothers and sisters. And because of the way that they saw the world through the lens of Jesus, their king, in this upside down kingdom where those who wanna be great must serve other people, that all through the world, all through the world, when people began to follow Jesus, people began to see other people as valuable for who they were as creations of God and not based on the group or the category that they were part of. In fact, Peter, who was a former fisherman who had followed Jesus, he would later write that they were joint heirs of a kingdom. That together, they were inheriting the kingdom of King Jesus that they were joint heirs. And so the disciples, we read in the book of Acts, the disciples were first called Christians or Christianis in Antioch. Not because of what Christians believed, but because of whom they chose to obey. Because of who they bowed their knee to. Don't miss this, okay? Forgiven people didn't change the world. Forgivers changed the world. Those who forgave, those who loved unconditionally, those who served people regardless of their status or their position or their group, because they recognized that Jesus was king 
over all of us. And that at the foot of the cross of Jesus, we're all equal. And so we bow together before King Jesus. Jesus was not just their life coach. He was not just a religious inspiration to them. He was their king. So the question for you and I today, tomorrow morning and every day, is he my king? Is he your king? Are we willing to allow him to sit on the throne of our life? When Jesus gave his life for us on the cross, before him stood his mother, Mary, and next to Mary stood John, the disciple whom he loved. And John, church tradition tells us, cared for Mary to the end of her life. And at the end of John's life, somewhere around 80 or 90 AD, John is exiled on the island of Patmos. And at this point, things are very dark in the world. Things are very dark in the world. Rome has pretty much demolished Jerusalem is about to probably burn the temple to the ground. It hasn't happened yet, but the, the 10th Legion is probably on their way. Uh, Paul has probably been put to death already at this point. Peter's been put to death at this point. And John is reflecting on his life with his savior whom he loves, that he recognizes is God and is his king. And he writes, in him, in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of the entire human race. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He wrote into a world that was full of darkness, but that darkness had not over, had been, I'm sorry, that darkness had not overcome the light. The light had overcome the darkness. It did then, it does now, and it always will. So for you and I, as we wake up tomorrow, as we wake up on Christmas Day, we wake up the day after Christmas, the question for you and I, will we allow Jesus to be king? Not just a religious inspiration, not just a a piece of jewelry that we hang around our neck, not a tattoo, but will we allow him to be Lord of our life? King of our lives. Let's pray. God, we have a choice to make this morning. You have a choice to make every morning. And this decision to follow you, God, not just to tip our hat to you, but to submit our lives to you, God, this is a decision that we have to make every single day. To let go of our own power, to let go of our own authority, to let go of our own claim to the throne of our lives, and instead to allow you to be king. And so today, God, we say, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time in our lives. Take our lives 
Make them useful to you. We want to not just enter into your kingdom someday. We want to participate in your kingdom today. Take us and make us useful in your kingdom today, God. We ask all this in your name. Amen.